Bapivo, Bipawabe. Hello and welcome to Meet the Artist podcast series hosted by the Museum of Indian Arts and Culture. My name is Matthew Martinez. I am the current deputy director at the museum. Located on ancestral Pueblo land in so-called Santa Fe, New Mexico, or Ogapoge, White Shell Water Place, Mayak is one of the four museums in the Museum of New Mexico system. Mayak is a premier repository of native art and material culture that tells the oral histories of the people of the Southwest, from ancestral stories through contemporary art. Like everything else, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic has significantly shifted the way the museum reaches our audiences, and we are using virtual events and digital programs to connect with our local community. As part of this effort, Mayak has continued to support indigenous communities by hosting several native artists on a YouTube series, also called Meet the Artist. To reach a broader audience and in response to the growing demand for online content, we are repurposing these interviews into a podcast. In this series, Mayak curatorial staff takes some time to speak with local artists about their work, how the pandemic has affected their practice, and what they've been up to in the past year. In this episode, Lilia chats with Chanupa Hanska Luger, Mandan, Hiratsa, Arikara, Lakota, and European, a multidisciplinary artist, about how he combines social collaboration with craft to visually communicate stories about contemporary indigeneity. My name is Lilia McEnany, and I am a curatorial assistant at the museum. And today we're going to be speaking with Chinuka Hanska Lugar. Lugar is really hard to describe in one sentence, but I'll take a stab at it. He's a multidisciplinary artist who combines social collaboration with craft to visually communicate stories about indigeneity. But before we start chatting with Chinupa, I'd like to briefly acknowledge the place where this conversation is happening, at least on my end, and even though we are in a virtual space in Okapoge within the Tewa world. As a non-Native person living in so-called Santa Fe, I am a guest in the ancestral homelands of the Pueblo people. And I wish to acknowledge all of the Native folks, past, present, and future, who walk on these lands. So thank you, Chinupa, for joining us. I'm really excited for this conversation. And so for viewers who may be new to your work, I thought we'd just start with a brief introduction, who you are, where you're from, what you do. I'm Chinupa Hanska Luger. Uh, I'm Mandan Hiratsa Rikara. That's where I'm enrolled. I'm also Lakota from my father's side and have European descent. I also am a visitor on these lands. I live in Glorieta, New Mexico. So on a mountain pass that's been used for time immemorial for all sorts of species to travel from one side of the range to the other. So that's where I'm at and who I am. I My background is in ceramics, but I multidisciplinary use basically any materials that are available. A lot of the times it's a repurposing of materials, which I enjoy. I also think is embedded in any customary practice of indigenous people. But I do, I do utilize as much technology as necessary to engage with an audience. I was born in 1979, so I grew up without the internet as far as interface for communication. But that's not the world we live in anymore. The world we live in today during COVID times is a lot of digital interface. And so as a sculptor, I've been really thinking about ways, even before this pandemic, how to engage with a three-dimensional object to a two-dimensional interface. And so a lot of video work, drone footage, 
leverage different aspects of transforming a three-dimensional reality into a two-dimensional experience has been kind of some of the directions my work has been going. That also, an extension of that just to engage with the audience is a uh, social engineered projects that I work on. And these are projects that I utilize social media as a platform to engage with audiences to participate in the making of work rather than the viewing of an object. I truly believe that there is a, that art to me is something that is a process, you know, and it's been intergenerational. The things I've learned, I've learned from ancestors before me, and I'm just the edge of this incredible wedge flying towards the future. And so with that being said, I believe that art is a action. It is an active experience and not a passive experience, but the way we present work presently is through institutions and galleries and transform art into a noun so that it can be a commodity. But what I've realized by doing these social engineer projects is you can engage with an audience to have ownership of work without having to possess it. And that's kind of what drove the social engineer projects to share the making process so that the audience is engaged with the work and have ownership over it in a way that doesn't involve possession. So that's a little bit of my background. Fantastic. I really like that idea of art as an action, not as a noun, because a noun turns it into a commodity. I think that's such an important point. But before we get into kind of the nitty gritty of these projects that you're alluding to, I wanted to talk more about the overarching ideas behind a lot of your work. You've talked a lot about, quote unquote, making things work. And so can you chat a little bit about what you mean when you say that and how it intersects with this idea of indigenous survivance? Yeah, I think making things work is the epitome of survivance. And I also think it's it's one of these root ideas that are embedded in indigenous knowledge and indigenous cosmology. As I've experienced my own culture through a Western lens, it is dead and preserved. And in that preservation, I think that's the model that every institution, museum, or gallery kind of works through is the preservation of culture. But as a maker, as an artist, as doing the work, I believe that culture is dynamic as well. And it's fluid. And artists and people, I mean, human beings are in the process of maintaining culture rather than preserving it. And I think the maintenance of culture is how these things have survived for eons before the kind of bottleneck of a, a museum space where these things are preserved. We have actively participated in making it work under the weight of many different circumstances. And I think that's indigenous survivance. You know, I think that's a, that's something embedded in our cosmology that is customary, you know, as new ideas or materials are that we are exposed to, we quickly adapt to those things and survive in the wake of it, you know, and take what's important, what's good and move that forward and allow the future generations to uh, maintain or, or abolish those things, you know, and so that's like the active role of culture maintenance, you know, versus preservation. Yeah, and it's like <laughs> effect of the museum, right? Where everything just becomes stuck in this one particular time, in this one particular place without any connection to the outside world. Like you said, it becomes dead. So this museumification effect, but you do still work in museums and um, you, I think, have at least four major exhibitions that are up right now. There's one at site, the Hood at Dartmouth, the Herd and the Denver Art Museum. So for the sake of time. I just like to focus on a few of these projects. And I'd like to start with the Hood Museum, where you installed Belonging, a mixed media life-size buffalo skeleton, which I think is from 2019. So can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about your thinking behind that work? And Yeah, 
The work was originally created for a gallery in Albuquerque, 516 Arts, and they were doing a project with UNM around species death and how that is going to have a ecological, economic, and total catastrophic effect on human experience possibly even with the research is saying before even our climate environmental collapse, like species collapse is, is kind of a more pressing impact on, on our experience as living things on this planet. And so they were looking specifically at creatures along the Rio Grande and species disappearance within those within that region. And so the buffalo piece that I was working on or belonging piece was looking at that kind of like history of what is the tropic cascade of removing an apex species from your environment. And being from North Dakota, being river people, the removal of the buffalo just had a catastrophic effect on our on our environment. And we don't talk about it so much, but I'm from the plains and the grasslands of this country are one of those environments that without having buffalo on it, it's nearly impossible to bring it back to what it was. There are aspects of its physiology that actually have a tropic cascading effect on the entire environment. So the way that their hoofs play, there are grass seeds that will unhusk themselves and be able to be planted by their weight and the way their hoofs plays it rolls the, the husk of their seed, not to mention like all all of, you know, without that seed, then what birds? And then without those birds, what coyote and small animals, you know? And then without them, what? there's just like a cascading effect of that. And so the idea for belonging was to put a buffalo in the river way upstream and use the river as a model for time. And as we talk about species disappearing now, what's their relationship to the to the absence of an apex species like the bison on the North American plains? And how has that affected our, our rivers? You know, how has that affected the plants and the animals, the fauna? How has that affected the insects? You know, so it was a way to, to embed a species that has been removed that we have experienced the loss of to allow people to understand this like cascading effect of species removal. And so belonging is a life-size uh, ceramic uh, mixed media buffalo that is a placeholder for that, you know, is embedded in belonging to the land, you know, a narrative. Because I, 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 th that's the other thing. So I, I, with that concept, I think of the root cause of a lot of our environmental problems, which is we look at the land presently as resource rather than gazing at it with reverence. And so this was like a physical object that could embed that kind of loss, you know? Absolutely. And I, I don't, I'm sure you've read, have you read this article by Tasha Hubbard? She's a Matisse um, scholar who argued, I, when I saw your piece for the first time, this is immediately where my, where my head went. And she argued that the slaughter of the buffalo constituted an act of genocide and explained how kind of the languages and ideas of American imperialism conflated indigenous people in Buffalo to the same status of non-human. And she had this really interesting idea, and I don't want to throw this term around, but of decolonizing the framework of, geno of genocide to include other than human relations. So she's yeah. moving through this concept of genocide through an indigenous epistemological framework in, the, in this context where several Plains communities know that Buffalo were the first people. And I thought mm -hmm. that's 
so interesting and spoke to your work so well. Well, and I think the other aspect of that, I do a lot of work around around Buffalo because yeah, we do have, I'm Buffalo people, you know, we had a, a deep time relationship to this nation, you know, the Buffalo nation. And I have something akin to survivor's guilt because the bison were eradicated specifically as an act of war. It was a war of attrition on my people, you know, Lakota, Mandan, the plain, the plains people. Their eradication was was simultaneous with the efforts to land grab in the in the Midwest and to reinforce this Western passage. And so there were wars, American Indian wars, against my people that militarily the U.S. Uh, struggled to impact our numbers and our knowledge of the land, but to eradicate a species that we were dependent on. I mean, it happened within 45 years and is, is simultaneous with the war and the effect on our communities. So this was a war of attrition, you know, and I've been doing work that I would really love to build a monument to the to the buffalo and their like a war memorial, you know, that I think would be significant and really talk about that as not a, you know, a tragic fate of Western expansion, but an active uh, military engagement to engage with the population of settlers to help with the eradication of the bison and, you know, say it has something to do with railroads or Western expansion and all these sorts of things, but really get to the root of the problem, which was embedded in land possession. Right. And it's all, it's strategic and very systematic. This was mm -hmm. all very meticulously planned by the American settler state. Like, and I think one way that is, that's really poignant is the way that like buffalo calves were also taken from their herd the same way that indigenous children were taken from their communities. And it's just- Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing about all of that is that this country owes a debt to the Buffalo Nation and they don't recognize it because we don't talk about it. But as the bison were piling up along the railroad lines where they were being systematically shot and it left their skeletons. And we're talking like 30 to 60 million buffalo in 1845 to by 1895, there were 1,500. So that's millions, tens of millions of buffalo dead. And it actually affected Western expansion because as people were traveling on the train, they would look out across the plains. And I was reading letters that said, it looks as though there is a winter's frost, but it is June. The landscape is littered with bones. And, and or like another one said, you know, we're returning as soon as we get to the next stop, we are traveling into the Valley of Death. So it actually became an economic driver for the country to remove all of those bison bones along the railroad line. And um, that's where, I don't know if you've ever seen, this is like where my research began is I grew up with that image of this pyramid oh, yeah. of buffalo skulls. And I always thought it was just like a show of force, you know, like um, something that this country could like create as an image to talk about how industrious it is. But I was like, that's never enough. This country is industrious. So what were they doing and why were why were there piles of skulls? And so my research into that question exposed the fact that all of those buffalo bones, the reason why there were piles of skulls is because they were they were collecting those bones, depositing them at train depots and hauling the bones off to be incinerated. And when once they incinerated the bones, they came up with two core materials, calcium bicarbonate and bone black or pigment. So these were the two industrial repurposing of, of buffalo back into the landscape at the, at the at a period of the industrial revolution in this country. And calcium bicarbonate for the most part was used and given away in large bags to settler farmers along the Midwest. And there was actually a distinct layer in our terrain of calcium bicarbonate because it is slow releasing fertilizer. And so all of the bread, corn, soy, wheat, all of 
of the things that we use as agricultural economic things for this country have been drawing from the bison bone. There was so much calcium bicarbonate that they also used it in the preliminary efforts to create steel. So they were blowing it through molten iron to carbonize it and make steel, which then turned into skyscrapers and more train lines and all of these other industrial applications of steel during the Industrial Revolution. And then also bone black, you know, and it used in everything from cosmetics to industrial paint. So this country owes a debt to that population that they eradicated. And for me, and having this deep time relationship to Buffalo, I always think about how our stories around Buffalo are ones of incredible generosity and how they have given themselves to us in order to survive, and then how that continued even into the Industrial Revolution of the American experience, you know, experiment. And so that is, I, I think that there needs to be a story about that. And I feel like some sort of monument to recognize that relationship to this more than human species and our dependence on them. Even American dependence is embedded in the generosity of the Buffalo Nation. Wow, that's staggering. I had no idea that in literally everything. I mean, it makes perfect sense when you think about it, but oh my gosh. And I think that, that monument, I think you're kind of on that on the road to making that monument and with belonging and you're working on a second iteration of it right now, right? I am. I actually have it right here. So we were talking, this will kind of like segue us into some other ideas, but there's an exhibition that's going to be in the works that you mentioned at the Denver Art Museum. And this is a collaborative exhibition that Marie Watt and I are, uh, have put together. And all of the work that is in that is work that's embedded in collaboration. And so Belonging talked it was created to be a collaboration with time and uh, the history of America and the land. And so it's made out of clay rather than collecting actual buffalo bones and, and doing that. I thought it would be important to create it out of the ground. But I'm working on a new iteration of that presently, which I've been calling Emergent. And it's actually going to be multiple bison antiquists or buffalo bones emerging from the ground in the, in the museum space and just really kind of talk about all of the urban and suburban and domestic regions that we inhabit on this in America are hallowed. They are sacred. They are, these are the, the fearful, you know, settler fearful burial grounds, you know, and to have these kind of figures emerging from a institutional landscape, I think kind of reinforces this idea of a deep time narrative and relationship to place. One that comes at incredible cost, you know, one that is a a blood and life sacrifice to the land. And so this is a new piece that I'm working on right now. And it's, yeah, just this ceramic buffalo kind of emerging from the landscape. Extremely exciting. I love what you just said about your work being in collaboration with the clay. And I know that's a lot about what the Denver exhibit is about. So can you talk a little bit more about this exhibit with Marie Watt and kind of what your goals for the project are? I think you're really disrupting that space really uniquely. Yeah, I think the, the exhibition was was kind of organized. I had never, I was aware of Marie Watt's work, of course, but I hadn't really met Marie. And I, I met her once before at the Native Arts and Culture Fellowship when I received an award from them. And she was one of the speakers, but it was brief, you know? And I was probably like, oh, that, that's Marie Watt, you know? <laughs> never seeing her before. And then a couple of years ago, I think maybe it was 2018, I met Marie Watt and, and met up with, it was just like a random, there was a, there was a Met Gala in New York. And I also just, was at a gala for the Museum of Art and Design from an award that I won from there. So there was a lot of Native people in New York. And I got a call from Dr. Jamie Powell, who 
works at the Hood Museum. And she was like, you got to come down here right now. Here's the address. And uh, I walked into a karaoke bar uh, <laughs> randomly. And there was like tons of Native people and curators in this like little tiny room singing karaoke. And uh, Marie Watt was there and John from the Denver Art Museum was there. And so we just kind of like all hung out a little bit. But I think that triggered this kind of like idea possibly in, in John to do an exhibition with Marie Watt and I. And as we started talking about the work we and, and each other and our practices, we really recognized that there was an overarching theme of social engagement and uh, social engineered projects. You know, how, how both of us have a background of making work collaboratively and inviting the public to participate in the creation of work. So we leaned into that and the exhibition is called Each Other. And so it was, it's an, all of the work that's in this exhibition is work that we generated through collaboration in one way or another in all of its multiple forms. And really to lean into the idea that the celebration of individual artists is like a myth, you know, that we are all dependent on one another. And that if we really exclaim about the efforts of many to create things together, uh, yeah, it absolutely undermines those sorts of like mythic models that our current economies are embedded in, you know? And so Marie Watt and I started to like really pick out some of the objects that they wanted for the exhibition. And we're like, look, let's give you, we're giving you all the ones that we really worked with people or there's a specific connection to landscape or environment or time, you know, where there has been a deep kind of meaningful collaboration where we as as the individual artists, you know, grew by making an effort of many. And so with that being said, you know, the title piece for this exhibition is a one another one of these social engineered projects that, that I talked about earlier, which is called Each Other. And it's a, uh, it just closed December 1st, but we were asking people to embroider onto bandanas and embroider your experience within the last six months or however long of social isolation, civic, the, the civic duty to like be ungovernable or restless, you know, and challenge, challenge our political systems and our systemic kind of racism. All of these things utilize the bandana and the bandana has been used throughout history as a way to protect yourself, you know, whether that's your identity or your lungs, you know. And so we, the exhibition, the title piece for the exhibition changed in relation because we were having this conversation about making this piece before COVID, but we adapted it and shifted it to relate to COVID as a, as a way to engage with an audience. And we were going to have a lot of other kind of like participatory experiences. But once COVID came into play, Marie Watt and I really, she, she was like, look, the way that I do things are not healthy, you know, as far as social collaboration. So let's, let's look at the model that you use for social engagement. And we decided to make a video on how to, what we're asking for, you know, and it was the model that I used for social engagement work, which is create a small video, put it out through social media and allow the audience, give them a prompt, you know, and um, and see how they respond. And so we prompted them with a video on, on taking a bandana, bunting it into a, into a triangle, embroidering on the bottom, anything really, like what's your, what's your experience? How would you describe that? Whether that's text or images, and then send that to us. And what we're going to do with that, with those bandanas is we were looking at these ideas of like shelter and security and, and also like independence on one another, interdependence, you know? And so we were like, okay, what is shelter without a roof? You know, what is these secure places? And Marie has a background of making these large canid forms. And we decided like, that's it, you know, at the breast of your mother is the most secure place that perhaps we're always longing for in our, you know, efforts. And it's not a home, you know, it's not a building, you know, but it is, it is security and it is comfort. And it's all of those things that shelter could be without it be 
being a physical object, you know, a physical location. And so we're building a large sheet wolf that's kind of a soft sculpture. Every every place this exhibition will travel, this massive 12, 12 to 14 feet tall by, I don't know, maybe 20 feet long, but all of the components are soft. So it can be manipulated and moved to engage with whatever environment it's embedded in. And we're like, and it's laying down in repose as a she-wolf would breastfeed its children. And so the audience is invited into that kind of sacred space of security and shelter. But collaboratively, the efforts of many have created the shelter for her. And so her entire pelt, which is her shelter, is made out of overlapping all of these bandanas of this collective effort to give her shelter as she in turn shelters us. So it's just this ongoing conversation of chicken or egg, you know, I don't know. Right. Oh, I can't wait to see that. That sounds completely incredible. And I really, um, to lean into this idea of social engagement and art as action and collaboration, I wanted to kind of pivot a little bit to talking about your performance art, which is just hugely dynamic and powerful. And one thing that I found particularly interesting in your work are your site-specific land acknowledgements. Land acknowledgements have started to kind of become co-opted in this very neoliberal way where people aren't tangibly thinking about what it would mean to return the land. And you're kind of rethinking the practice in a way that breathes maybe new intentionality into the idea. And I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about what land acknowledgements mean to you in that context. Yeah, well, I I don't know if I've seen a truly like land acknowledging land acknowledgement from an institutional level. What I've seen quite a bit, and I think it's an important start, you know, is a recognition of the people who have been on the land prior to settling, you know, Western expansion and settler colonialism. But I, with it being specific to people, it seems like a way to me, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, and like I said, it's a great start, but it feels like to acknowledge the people who who were here before you reinforces the idea that settling and settlerism is okay, you know? It's like, look, we're just in a long line of, of settler efforts. And there were indigenous people here before who settled this place, you know? And it reinforces and kind of like negates and move towards innocence the impact of colonialism, you know? Where it's like, oh, we're just a long extension of this land settling, you know, endeavor. But when we look at this in a geological time frame, the land shaped the people who were here before the American experiment so much that they're phenotypes shifted, you know, like that relationship to place wasn't one of dominion or possession or ownership, but one of belonging, you know, like these are the people who belong to this landscape. This landscape informed their shape, you know, it informed their customs and their cultures. It is not resource that can be claimed, you know, it is a, it is a place where they survived this landscape and it affected their culture and their physiology, you know? So I think it's important that when we do start like really leaning into this idea of land acknowledgement, we put land first in that conversation. My relationship to land acknowledgements is embedded in a lot of our customary prayers, how we open prayer. And it's an acknowledgement of the land. It's the acknowledgement of the four directions, the winds, the plants and the animals that exist on that place. It's an acknowledgement of a much 
deeper and broader conversation around what land is. And it's that acknowledgement is to create the sense of reverence for the fact that you're here at all, you know, rather than reinforcing the fact that because you're here, it's because this is a, a long line of settler colonial efforts, you know, this is the, this is the human model, you know, it's finally we're starting to acknowledge that indigenous people were here before us, but we're not acknowledging the fact that the land has been here much longer than that and our relationship to it, particularly from indigenous people, is one of reverence, you know, the, the reason why a land acknowledgement exists at all is because we revere the grace and the generosity of the landscape for us to be here, not because we're so industrious and can build a home wherever we want and put up a fence, you know? So I think that that's, that that's the next step in land acknowledgement that I think is necessary. And rather than waiting for us to get to that place, my efforts as far as performance work is to bypass all of that and move into an indigenous future. And so the work that I had been creating is looking at customary kind of like designs and forms and purposes of regalia and reapplying them in a future context and then embed our customary practices, these affirmations of land reverence to the land and apologize for every human-shaped thing up until this moment. You know, like that's a, that's the first ritualistic efforts of this like imagined indigenous futurist entity is to apologize for what we've done and for being lost, you know, and asking like, I know that there are our protocols and customs and that the land has been telling us these things for generations and I just want to first say I'm sorry for not paying attention you know and I'm sorry for what we had done and in that I think that there is something you know active in the in the maintenance of culture through some of our customary technologies you know and our, our these technologies are ones of um, that are becoming you know at present really interesting to economies, you know, ideas of sustainability and stuff like that. There are, you know, tons of companies right now that are moving towards more sustainable practices, more ethical practices. But a lot of that's embedded in our own indigenous technologies and really kind of globally. You know, there's been a relationship to land a lot longer and a lot deeper than our 20 and 21st century kind of like historical references reinforce, you know. So far, we've been justifying the violence that we've impacted our environment with, we justify it by creating goods for us to purchase, you know, and make it as easy and as cheap as possible. But I think that there are, I think there are conversations that are coming into play at present. And I think there's a lot of indigenous technology kind of globally because it is specific to regions. We're looking for a silver bullet, you know, yeah. um, to this monster, but there's no, there's no one silver bullet. We live on a large, varied landscape. And so each landscape, each environment, has in it embedded protocols of sustainability. You know, I'm from the Northern Plains. I live here in New Mexico. Our like planting processes would not be applicable to this landscape, but there is technology of indigenous people within this region who have been maintaining those technologies through maintaining them. Right. And I think I really want to hone in on one point that you just made, the focus on settler appropriate, not, I don't know if appropriation is the right word, of indigenous practices of acknowledgement. Would you maybe phrase it that way? and thinking more broadly about 
appropriation and so much of your work focuses on popular narratives about indigeneity that are based in these myths perpetuated by settler colonialism in the so-called United States. And in a discussion uh, maybe a few years ago for MOCNA, I saw that you explained how society compartmentalizes identity to the lowest common denominator. And I thought that was such an interesting way to explain this point. So can you talk a little bit more about that and how you see your work through maybe these land acknowledgement, these site-specific land acknowledgements, disrupting these social practices of stereotyping and appropriation and settler performance of acknowledging? Yeah, well, I think all of that's embedded in, I'm not any more a victim of that than you are, you know? I'm not a, a victim any more of that than my oppressor is, you know? We've maintained this narrative of control and I think the lack of understanding makes it easy to, to move into these places, you know? There are there's a tremendous amount of guilt and shame and fear in not relating to place, you know? And I, th I think about that even in context of like indigenous art, native art, the, the heart of native art was created to give the displaced European American population a deep time relationship to place. I think there was a longing to belong to this landscape, you know? And I recognize the privilege that I have actually having that belonging, you know? But I, I don't think that it's not possible for people to do that. I just think that they need to participate in the protocols of indigenous voices and experiences in order to move out of that place of dominance, you know? I have incredible sympathy, uh, if not empathy, I don't know if it's empathy, but I have sympathy for that sense of loss, you know? And, and what I see is our, our economy and our practices kind of like as a, as a society is without that relationship to place, there is a hole in us, a longing, you know? And rather than belonging to the land, the hole is filled with belongings, you know, belongings don't make you belong. And so I think about that in relationship to native art, like the creation of this like narrative of traditional, you know, is reinforced not by necessarily us, but by the market, because it wants to have a historical object so that when they open up the, the table to a dinner party, they can express how they belong to this place because they've purchased work that has this historical reference and a deep time relationship to place. This is why Mount Rushmore. This is why monuments all over this country. It's because it wants to belong to this place and create a nation and a narrative of geography and geology and an embedded history in that. But it's not possible with the idea of dominance. You have to submit to the will of the land, you know? And that's what indigenous survivance has been. It's, it, like I said, you belong to it. It does not belong to you, you know? And so a lot of a lot of the narratives that unfold that are embedded in like today's kind of even political standpoints of decolonization and land back and appropriation and all of these sorts of things, I, I think about them in relationship to, you know, this is not our land, you know? And, and, and as long as we keep thinking about that, the idea of institutional impact and systemic racism and all of these kind of things, as long as we keep talking in that vein that, that it belongs to us and we need it back and this has been taken away from us, reinforces our victimhood in that in that space. But really, truly, I believe we belong to it and there is no fence, there is no highway, there is no border that can separate you from that belonging. And I think in the human experiment, somewhere along the line, somebody decided that there was this narrative of man versus nature, this 
intrepid endeavor to, to tear yourself away from that landscape. And I think that's the original wound that has been dug in and opened up and reinforced through our systems, you know, industrialization, consumerism, all of these kind of like capitalism, all of these things that have like generated out of this initial wound is you are not separate from nature, you know? You are not removed from it. This is an idea and it's violent and it's and it's hurtful. And out of that violence and that harm, you look into psychology and the core base thing is hurt people hurt people, you know? And that's, I think we've been playing a long game of telephone of, of, of that initial wound. And yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question specifically, but I think that leans into the idea of, you know, indigenous protocol and customs and even appropriation of those things. And, and then also reducing us to a one dimensional entity, you know, all of those things are reinforced this idea of dominance and control, like the, the effort to experience one another as nature changes that whole dynamic. If we can remove ourselves from the land, then we can remove ourselves from one another, you know, and you create the idea of other out of that separation, that initial wound. But if you recognize yourself as an extension of the land, as an extension of nature, as extension of life, then where, where do I end and you begin? you know, if that's something that we celebrate and move forward. Yeah, and I think that really just gets at the heart of everything that we've been talking about, this idea of kind of versus relationality versus ownership, right? And disrupting this narrative of the traditional is extremely important, especially museum contexts and art market contexts. So in that vein, I'm wondering if you, I, this is a huge question, but can you talk about maybe why it's important to tell stories about Native people right here now today, specifically in relationship to this myth around tradition and authenticity? Yeah, like I said, I was born in 1979. I grew up and all of my heroes were ghosts. You know, they were sapia photographs of uh, warriors and chiefs that somehow made it through the popular culture narratives, you know, as something that we can relate to. You know, every film that I saw as a child growing up was not, didn't embed us in any sort of contemporary context. It, it embedded us in a historical relationship. And I think that there is psychological effects of, of not having living heroes, you know? And then on top of that, to be viewed as a one-dimensional character when you do, when you are experienced in popular culture, you know, doesn't give any depth or complexity. What I think is important about people maintaining indigenous knowledge and sharing it forward into the future is that it opens up that one-dimensional character into a varied, complex, and contradictory people, you know? And so I'm always really kind of fascinated with like where our stories come from and what our what our relationships are. My our like creation stories talk, talk about us coming from Sky World. And I'm really fascinated about meeting other indigenous people in just North America who have whose creation stories vary in that like some come from the sea, some come from under the ground, some from come from Sky World, you know. And I, and I love I love the variation of that because that builds complexity, you know, and it builds a narrative of diversity rather than homogeny. And I think it's important for us to talk about our experiences in a 21st century context because that that was something that was missing from my 
childhood, you know, is having and seeing our contributions to the to the globe and to the society that oppresses us even, you know, that I think it's important to see, you know, as a, as a kid there, you know, I was born in the wake of this 1970s revival of like, we're still here, you know, but I'm like, there's, it's more than we're still here. Look at how we've contributed. Look at all of those agricultural plants that I was talking about at the beginning of this conversation with the buffalo, corn, potatoes, tomatoes, chocolate, all of these things are indigenous technology. And they have been, there's incredible brilliance within the biological knowledge of this landscape that has been co-opted and turned into a commodity without any sort of recognition of our contribution to our society. And I think it's important that we open up those conversations. I, I think it's important that we do that, you know, to remind the overarching economies that we're participating in, the, the systems that we participate in, to give like the next generation recognition and pride in not that we're just still here, but look at how we have contributed, you know, and then within that, what are some of the embedded protocols and cosmologies and relationships to these things? And can we reinforce those in a mechanized industrial era to, to look at sustainability and how these practices have been taken away from us and turned toxic in, without those like embedded narratives and protocols and reverence for these more than human species, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the way you opened that was just so poignant, all of your heroes were ghosts. And I think that's just a very poignant way to kind of sum up what you're saying. I mean, this erasure is very purposeful. I mean, it was the idea of indigenous technology was purposely erased from the way that people are socialized. And this goes back to our earlier conversation about envisioning a future that reckons with capitalism and environmental degradation and just the immeasurable disaster of American settler state, right? To envision this place where we can live within the land rather than on the land. And that is incredibly linked with our current situation with the pandemic. So, and I think a lot of people in the, the wake of 2020 have slowed down, maybe paid more attention to their surroundings, maybe been a little more intentional in how they think and um, how they spend their time. So I was wondering in relationship to all of these other conversations, can you talk about your experience in the pandemic? How has this kind of apocalyptic situation altered your thinking or your artistic practice? And I know this idea of the apocalypse for Native communities is not particularly or necessarily new. No, this is Mad Max Chinupa. This is, we've already experienced the darkest apocalypse that's written in any like religious tome. You know, we had our Ragnarok. We had our, you know, calling our, I can't remember what it is in Judeo-Christian uh, narratives, but these notions of apocalypse have already happened to us and we somehow survived it, you know? And so I think as the rest of the world is experiencing that, I think that there are a lot of indigenous communities globally who have been honed into incredibly hard to perish people, you know? And our relationship to place, I think, is what grounds us in that effort and ability to survive, you know? But this is the history of humanity on this planet is one of movement and it's one of displacement, you know? And it's not even displacement as much as it is a natural cycle in our, you know, as an extension of the land. Like the surface of this planet flows, you know, the thing's spinning the whole time. And anytime we leap, we come down somewhere else, you know? And that's something that we maintain throughout our histories, but we've existed in places long enough to create variation in our forms, you know? I think, I think all of that's really interesting because, yeah, the pandemic has slowed us down 
you know, that movement of and capacity and ability even to navigate landscapes and borders. You know, we're coming into this age and period in, in human history that is incredibly nationalized, you know, and in that nationalism, the restriction of the fluid movement of people is reinforced. But once again, like even our economies are embedded and that movement is necessary, you know? So how do we challenge all of those things? And I, I think it's really interesting because even in the wake of national kind of like efforts, colonial efforts, all of this stuff, it all seems to be embedded in these nation ideas, you know, this idea of dominating the land, you know? Each border is a narrative of land dominance, you know? This is as much as our king can control, you know? Anything beyond that, and it begins to collapse, you know? But, you know, I think about the expansion of people and particularly like settler colonial efforts is not one of nations as much as it is one of companies and corporations. And as long as we keep, you know, focusing on the shaking hand that is like nationalism, we're not looking at what's actually driving these efforts. The darkest and most violent of colonialism that we're experiencing presently is extractive colonialism, you know? And in that, people don't necessarily move, but the goods from those landscapes are, are stripped away from those environments and, and return to to smaller areas that's a corporate effort you know what i'm saying like that that is not a nat a nation a nation's effort that might be where these things are deposited but these are the income from that the the economic value of that is distributed to very few people very few entities you know and those entities are these corporations we're still we're still participating in this you know settler colonial experience this isn't something of the past that we can like look back on and feel sorry about you know and, and then ask people to like move on you know we're maintaining it and we're doing it with our dollar every day you know so the choices that we make I think, especially now in like this pandemic period where we are, um, we might not get to go and travel to places to get goods or, or anything like that. Maybe we're ordering things more so online, but I think there's an embedded, like who has online marketing power, you know, and what are their, what resources and what regions are they extracting from in order for us to receive our goods and reinforce this idea of comfort, you know? So I think it's really complex. I personally, I was traveling quite a bit before the pandemic. I was going to many different places. I, my education only goes as far as the Institute of American Indian Arts. I only have a Bachelor of Fine Arts. I didn't go to grad school. And so to be embedded in any sort of academic circles, I had to hustle rather than, you know, go to grad school and get all of these introductions into academia and stuff. So it was really a, a process of traveling to places and having conversations. I can do that all now from my studio. And it's kind of fascinating because the cost of that travel was high, you know. So it's impact of that travel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All of those sorts of things. And also just like personally, I had been working so hard within that system. Like you said, I work at galleries. I, I exhibit my work within these systems that I think are generally toxic. But, you know, there's the depth of my hypocrisy is is insane, you know, because I'm working on it right now. Like I'm so close to it. It's hard to navigate a way out. And so I'm like through. Let's just go through it, you know. But I had been working so hard to create security and comfort and a, a sense of home for my family, my partner Ginger, my two boys, Io Kahoku and Seisha Soki. I've been working so hard to provide this like idea of home and comfort and security that I did not 
personally get to benefit from all of that effort. And I think that this is something that many of us have experienced. You work so hard to try not to work so hard, you know, to try to have leisure and comfort and experience the things that are important to you. And this kind of like forced home this really opened up for me my first opportunity in like three or four years to be a part of that home and really to complete what I was working so hard to create, you know? There wasn't any amount of money that could provide the same things that a father for my children could provide, you know? There wasn't, I, I couldn't buy me back into being a part of this family. And so for me, it's been really kind of like profound to do all of this work from home and to have, to recognize that like, as we want to shift and move and adjust the systems in the world that we exist in, that that doesn't have to be a, you know, aim for the moon effort, but it can happen at home. It can happen with your own personal relationship to how you do things, you know? Because I live rurally, we have to haul out all of our garbage. So we actively, you know, started looking for companies to who don't make things in small little packages. We like started looking for things bought in bulk and that aren't sent to us in plastic, you know? And so like, all, you have to pay more for it right now because there isn't a massive economy within those, within those spaces. But the more of us that do that, then it We've been looking more so at like, who are these ethical companies and entities that are that we can buy the goods that we think we need, you know, from. And that's a small effort, but that makes a big difference on as that scales up from one family to the next family to the next family. And if we can support and reinforce ethical companies because they exist, we can change and shift this kind of like narrative that we've been participating in ever since. We can do that. We can vote with our own little dollar every day, you know. Right. Um, you don't even have to be. 18. Yeah. Yeah. So these are these are small little efforts that I've experienced from being isolated, from being at home, from being alone, you know, all of these like, you know, fear-based kind of narratives of this, you know, removal of a social experience. But I've had incredible returns on that from my immediate community, which is my small family, you know. And I think a lot of people are having that experience as well, you know. So I'm I'm really fascinated to see how that kind of like mental growth and relationship relationship to our immediate families through like this forced, I don't know, pandemic experience, you know, how that changes the way we move forward from here, you know? Yeah. And how, could it, how could it not? Exactly. So I think that's a good place to end unless there's anything else that you wanted to chat to my audiences about. No, I think that's good. All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us and thank you, Chinifa. Yeah, you're welcome. So long. Kuntawoha. Thanks for joining us today. And don't forget to visit us online at myactlab.org for information on our exhibits, to learn about upcoming events, or to plan your next in-person visit. To watch the full version of this interview, follow us on the Mayak YouTube channel. This podcast has been produced by Gladys Rimkis with editorial support from Lilia McEnany and Matthew Martinez. Special thanks to Jacob Shahey from Santa Clara Pueblo for providing the music for this podcast. Follow him on TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. Be sure to check out his music, available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, and SoundCloud. This series is funded by the Henry Luce Foundation.